Hey guys, before today's episode of the podcast, I want you to text me 212-931-5731. If you don't, you're missing out. I'm putting all my eggs in the fucking text basket. 212-931-5731. This is the Gary V Audio Experience. Welcome back, Gary V Audio Experience listeners. I hope you all had a wonderful weekend. This morning's podcast is from a VIP breakfast meeting that Gary did on his trip to Mexico before speaking at his keynote. He answers a lot of valuable questions regarding children and parent relationships, social media, and just staying on the offense at all times. I hope you enjoy. Uh, I'm thrilled to answer questions if that's the format. You know, I'm not sure the format that you guys want to take it here. I mean, maybe as an opening remark, um, I've spent a lot of time over the last couple of months looking at this market in preparation for this. You know, I think there's just so much opportunity. Uh, you know, whether it's in America, sometimes if I go outside of New York City in a smaller city, people don't think there's opportunity. When you go to other countries, when you're an American, everyone's like, yeah, but it's easier for you, it's bigger, there's more dollars. But as I travel the world in every place, there's just, there's so much opportunity because of technology that you know, the reality is if you can reverse engineer what you're actually trying to achieve, if you really are self-aware, if you really know what you're trying to achieve, it's actually remarkable um, how practical it is to be able to achieve that today in a world where for our parents and our grandparents it just was not. I, I think we very much underestimate the internet. I mean it. It's, it's just starting. It's only 25 years old, you know, in the scheme of things. Um, So, to me it's about being in the business of yes instead of the business of no. And I feel like a lot of times when you, when I travel through the filter of being American, people start with no. Let me tell you why it's harder here than it is. It's hard there too. It's hard everywhere. And I would argue, as I've kind of traveled, often, there's even more opportunities in markets outside the US because of that mental framework and, and just the nature of the, you know, um, you know at, as a commentator on human behavior and business in the US and an executor, um, I think people would be very surprised. Basically 95 to 97% of my interactions, the client or the people are actually pushing against it. They don't believe, you know, and so, it's quite conservative in America too. Uh, people play defense, you know, and so I just think there's a lot of opportunity in the market, and so I'd, I'm very excited to be here. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you. I'm I'm Rodolfo Rubio. I'm the CMO for for Tech in so I'm occupied all the time with listening to people like you Please. and then trying to turn that into action. Yes. You're very provocative. Great. And Thank you. On the same tone that you were. Anything that struck you with what you saw in this market uh, in terms of the opportunity, what specifically un- under, did call your attention? Under, saying, guys, wake up. Underpriced ads. Underpriced the ads. Yeah. Every every single digital ad in social or YouTube here is wildly underpriced versus how much consumption in the market is happening. That's it, not super complicated. You know? Instagram swipe up story ads in the entire country and the region, let alone the country, are wildly underpriced. Organic reach on, on you know, TikTok 
is wildly underpriced here. Wow. You know, but you have to, you know, for now you have to target 12 to 18 year olds and most businesses don't. So, but if it ages up, right? I mean, YouTube, YouTube pre-roll ads here are, are super underpriced. You're really into TikTok, I'm really, really excited with, with what's happening and how quickly I'm always ex- I'm always excited when a new platform comes along that has hundreds of millions of users and you can have no following post once and get a million views. Yeah, that's very rare. That was 2011 Facebook. That was, you know, this is very rare. And and I'm just fascinated people's ability yes, but but people's ability to say no. What, what, what frightens people? What scares people of TikTok? Judgment of other people. They don't want to make a TikTok video because they're worried about their friends and business friends and associates saying that that's for kids and it's stupid. Mm-hmm. And the biggest thing, the biggest reason TikTok matters to somebody who sells steel and to 60-year-old C-suite executives in a B2B business is not that TikTok, even at scale, if it got older, is necessarily gonna be a platform for that person to do business. It's that humans are reacting to certain styles of content and it's important for you to pick up on those nuances. It would be no different than when hip hop came along, everybody who only believed that rock and roll was important, they said no to hip hop. They said that's not real music and then it became the music. And so that's always what happens in popular culture. The way we storytell on TikTok is going to matter in 10 years. Yeah, to me, probably that's the biggest learning you can do because for brands, the biggest challenge is how to contextualize content properly for the very quick involvement of platforms. Correct. And, and most brands don't get it right. That's right. I mean, I'm not saying we get it right as a brand. Technically, yeah, no, no, I, I think you're right. Because we're a pretty conservative brand, but uh, that's a challenge. How do we contextualize the content? By first getting into a mindset as a company to produce enough content. You know, the biggest problem in the marketing world, in the macro, is, the yeah, just not enough content. Long production time. That's right. Complicated. Quality, quality is looked at as a production value, not as being consumer-centric. Talking about me and how beautiful it is. Right? Yeah. It doesn't take the customer into account. It's in a boardroom. Yeah. And the big boss gets to make the decision if he or she thinks it's funny or not. The madman world. A hundred percent. And we're still in it. No, well, very much so. Yeah. Well, here are the big bosses are the entrepreneurs. So we have a lot of them on the table. And any comments, questions you would like to address? Gary? Come on, don't be shy. Don't be shy. So, don't be shy. <laughs> I have a question. Yes. Like many of us are like getting into entrepreneurship. Yes. That. So what would you recommend us for making ourselves like our own personal brand? Well first, before uh, I'll answer that, but the first thing I'm gonna say is a little bit maybe interesting. I'm very concerned that so many people are looking to become entrepreneurs. I think entrepreneurship has become the new university and I think if, you know, this may sound very weird because entrepreneurship is my great love and has been so good to me, but I want for you what, what happened to me, which was in the face of entrepreneurship not being cool and school being the only way out, 
I was lucky enough to have a mother and lucky enough to have DNA that had conviction for me to go against the grain. First, for everybody here, you have to, you know, hopefully because of this talk, have to go home and really ask yourself, do you have the stomach for entrepreneurship? Entrepreneurship is very, very difficult. It's a lot of judgment, you know? It's, you know, I'm watching people right now take their company out of business in a year because they don't want to deal with closing it now, but it's already over. You know, they worry about judgment. They're not willing to go backwards. They're not willing to sell their fancy office and start back at a zero place. They'd rather go out of business because of judgment. So first, you have to, you have to challenge yourself. Are you truly a number one? Because I see a lot of kids right now who are actually incredible and have so much talent, but really their makeup is more for to be a number three or number six or number two. Because number one is always, always, always on. You're, you're not an entrepreneur, you're a firefighter. You're always ready for the alarm to go off. And it's very, very daunting if it's not your natural DNA. As far as personal brand, I think that this, the great secret to personal brand is speaking your truth. I think the biggest mistake I see today is everybody's trying to figure out what's working. I see a lot of people who are very conservative try to be bombastic on video because I'm bombastic on video. You know? And for me what worked was in 2009 when I was bombastic on video, it was unacceptable to not wear a suit. It was unacceptable to curse. It was unacceptable to act the way I was acting and much of the business world pushed against me. Then Facebook won, a movie was made, everybody wore a hoodie, it became more casual, it got younger, it changed. But, but I don't think I would have anywhere close to the success I have if I wasn't always myself. And, and what's important about always being yourself is it's easy. Meaning, I watch people and they're playing somebody on camera or on Instagram and you have to think when you're not yourself. You have to try to remember what you said. You have to, you have to live life in a different way. You know, and so one, 100% you. Even though it might not seem that that's the right thing to do. Two, producing content at contextual scale. You have to be everywhere uh, to the best of your ability. Everybody always says, easy for you now, Gary. You have DRock, you have a team. I'm like, yes. But from 2006 to 2014, I did not. I did everything myself. It took time, you know, and so patience. You know, most people give up because they have 49 followers and they're like, ah, you know? It took me three, I, I did Wine Library TV for two, three years before it even got going. Every day, five days a week. So, that's what stands out for me. Do you think entrepreneurship is something which can be taught? I think entrepreneurship can be taught, but I think Entrepreneurship can be taught the way basketball and, and football can be taught. It's a talent. So for me, it was a talent and I practiced since I was five and at 44, I can really do it. Uh, I can start practicing and being taught how to sing tomorrow. My intuition is that I'm not gonna become Beyonce. <laughs> so I do think it can be taught but I, think it's, but I think the upside is predicated a little bit on talent. And so that's why I speak a lot about entrepreneurship that is building businesses that are not a billion dollars. 
to me, what's great about entrepreneurship is the ability to have a business that does $300,000 for you a year and you're happy instead of a job that does 120,000 and you're unhappy. Or even more extreme for me is entrepreneurship's amazing because you could have a business, a sugar business, you know, that does 100,000 for you personally after it's all said and done and you're happy because you love sugar for some reason (laughs) um, versus being a lawyer for 180,000 and being unhappy and then you just have to live your life based on 100,000. So for me it's happiness and self-awareness. That's why entrepreneurship's so interesting. The problem is right now when people hear entrepreneurship they hear build a billion dollar company. So we're not talking about entrepreneurship in a practical way, we're talking it in a Hollywood way. I think the great thing about entrepreneurship is it's the most likely way for one to be happy if they're self-aware and live within their means. Hello, Gary. Uh, My name is Rodrigo. Rodrigo, nice to meet you. Um, First, before, I have a few questions. Yes. Which I think you could give me really good insights on. But before, just, um, a little brief background of yourself. Yes. Would be really nice, but not like a Wikipedia style because we can do that. But like the key points that got you where you are, that would be really nice. Um, like these, a, I got it. History, the, the the key points are that as a child, as an immigrant from the Soviet Union, I had the luxury of many good things happen for me. Number one, we were poor, and so I'm an entrepreneur because you know I was I have the DNA but I also didn't have the luxury of being fed. If I wanted a toy, I had to buy it. So I was forced to go hunt for myself. So the key key things, one being an immigrant which led to no entitlement. Um, I think the next biggest thing was I loved sports and when I was a child baseball cards became very, very big. And so at 11 and 12, I became very consumed by it. And that's when I started really building businesses. Um, But the, the things that made me me, like the history was, I went from lemonade and and washing cars and shoveling snow, anything to make a dollar from six to 12. Then 12 to 15 was baseball cards where I really learned Yes. Yes. At that, at that age, did you realize, were you like really conscious about all that you were learning? Like, no. Did you have the palate or you just did it because? Not, no, and not only that, on a stage maybe four years ago, while giving a talk about my history, it clicked to me what I was actually learning, which was when I was selling lemonade, I wasn't selling lemonade, I wasn't behind the table, I was walking in the streets making signs and putting them on trees. At baseball card shows, the reason I did so well was my table was different. I would set it up differently, I would walk around the show. I, I was paying attention to people naturally at a very young age. When I worked for my dad's liquor store and I had to stand behind the register and be the cashier, I would literally watch every single customer walk into the store and I would watch them. How would they walk? What would they grab? Why? And so when the internet came along, it came very natural to me to understand that people were gonna pay attention to the computer and I wanted to understand how. 
So my history has been completely predicated on, on watching people. It's, it's why I know a lot about youth culture. I read all your DMs. You know, if you read 500 Instagram DMs from 15 to 25 year olds every single day, you have a very good idea of what 15 to 25 year olds are thinking about. For me, it's all been about listening. Which is interesting because I'm such a loud talker, right? So it's, it throws people off, but my whole career has been about listening. What do you mean by having the DNA? Natural talent. <coughs> your DNA, your makeup, like your personality that you're born with. You know, there's, you know, th- my, my sister and my brother are my parents' kids too, but they're different than me. You know? Yeah, I got a comment, like, question. Yep. Because I do agree, like, not everyone or or if they're incapable of dealing with fear. Yeah. I'm not worried about passion. I'm worried about people have been parented and have DNA that makes them scared. If you're scared of people's opinions, you're already a very vulnerable entrepreneur. Very vulnerable. Especially when you go, it's one thing to not, to not care about people's opinions when you're starting. You could be tough now. Like, ah, my dad doesn't know. I'm gonna build a huge company. What happens when you fail? What, and, and now they're right. And you have shame. If you care about your dad's opinion, you're a vulnerable entrepreneur. Yeah, building resilient, right? Hard skin, basically. Yeah, but the thing about what I was trying to go to is like, uh, what happens? I'll tell you about the concept in Mexico. There's a lot of entrepreneurship, right? I'm aware. But my thing, what my question goes to, how do you actually scale up? That's a big question. Because not going to a Hollywood movie, like a billion dollars, yep. but actually scaling up and making your company create value, not just locally, but actually. So my question goes like, what would be your advice? How do you define scaling up? Scaling up would be like, from your local context, actually going further into other states, and if it's worth it, going nationally, and if it's worth it, Understood. Globally. Go ahead. And uh, so my question goes regarding, like, in your experience, what would you give advice you would give, actually, for a scale As a whole. Yes. I can tell you, like, my business is so traditional. Steel, as you said. Yeah. <laughs> you mentioned this way, so I was like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, and steel is basically very, like, conservative. And you're talking about, like, taking into account but like always hearing the customers, right? Yep. But how do you actually scale up in a context that it's basically conservative? You know, to me, scaling, for me, I like to scale slow. I think most people want to scale fast, which is why everything has become about financial arbitrage, you know? Um, Look, I think scaling's, you know, you'll appreciate this. Going from state to state in steel is by getting a customer in a different state. Like, you know, what's crazy about these answers is they're wildly simple. I think, I think the word scaling has been glamorized, right? And scaling means, you know, valuations and, and top line revenue, you know, like, and, every, and, and everybody wants it fast, too. So, you know, scaling in a B2B steel business is really just about customers. You're more than welcome to get on a plane and fly anywhere in the world, let alone a state within Mexico, and have dinner or have lunch or breakfast or get a presentation to somebody to buy your product versus your competitor's product. Now, you may not have the economic advantages. You know, a lot of people make decisions on a commodity, on price. Um, 
then you, there's only one other way to scale if you can't compete on that level, which is becomes building brand, right? Takes a long time, but you're such a young man, you could spend the next 10 years trying to turn your company steel company into something that looks like Intel or Splenda. You know, like you could. You could convince over the next decade or two that they should buy your steel over someone else's because you were better at podcasting and LinkedIn and other things. You could. So to me, those are just the practical ways to scale. I, I think the bigger question is in what amount of time. You know, I think we were just talking, you know, before we came up here, like, he's like, do you feel old? I'm like, I feel young. I do. You know, I'm 44 years old in a week. 10 years ago, I started VaynerMedia. I, because I built my dad's business for him and I didn't own it and I never paid myself a lot of money, I had no money. At 34, I had no money. I had so little money that I had to start VaynerMedia in another company's conference room. I'm gonna get, I got paid more to give this speech than I made in the year when I was 34 years old. I'm 44, and how old are you? I'm yeah. 58. He's 58. I, I believe it. I'm, I believe it. That's, that's the point, that's why, I'm, that's why I'm asking. He's 58, that's 14 years from now. He's in the game, he's vibrant, and he's thinking about 20 more years of execution. Absolutely. I know you are. So what are we talking about here? So you can imagine when I look at you guys. Right, like, you know, he has, he has, a, he has socks older than you. Right? I do, I do, I do too, I do too. There you go. So I think, I think the biggest vulnerability to the majority of this table is lack of patience, which comes from insecurity to try to prove to everybody that they're good. Once you stop caring about proving to anybody, you can go slow. Once you go slow, you make better decisions. By the way, Terry, I'm, you're gonna, I'm gonna get much more tactical on my conference. Don't miss that. I'm gonna get really tactical on how to scale. And I think it's through weaving partnerships. So it's about connecting people in different regions, as Terry said, and different people in your leadership staff. So I think it's about, we were talking about this in the cartoon, it's about how you connect with other people and how they enjoy your leadership. So we're all here because of Gary's leadership. If, if there's a leader inside the company, that's gonna weave much more, a, a much stronger scale than if the leadership's not there. And I think, I think Gary, that's, that's a difficult part, just and I want you to comment on that. There's a talent on building the business, and then there's a talent on leadership, which is on getting people to, I think that's right. You can buy the two I do. Very scarce in the world. And I know there are a lot of business people that are not actual leaders. And that's that's a balance that's hard to have. And then even if you are naturally a leader or you practice to become a leader, the next thing is what's your agenda? You know, because if you're naturally a great business operator and naturally a great leader, but your north star is money, your actions are going to be in a way that the people underneath you have to struggle to buy into that framework because short-term economics lead to decisions no matter how much of a leader you are, right? And so, it, to me it's always, I always bring it up, reverse engineer. What are you actually trying to achieve? Work backwards. And, and I don't think people spend enough time on understanding themselves there. 
What do you mean like take from the mentality of the, the we as a country I think the, the mentality we have is sometimes everything that you're saying is like multiplied by ten. The insecurities, the you you always like you're always thinking what, what they're gonna say and, and it's really hard to scale up because there's people that are actually like I see exactly what you're saying, what you're doing. I see Carlos doing exactly the same thing, and, and what he has accomplished, I think, is, is unbelievable. And I see him applying your skills. But sometimes it's harder in a country where the mentality and the, the division between the people is a lot. The, the, I don't know if, if you understand. I'm very, so un- I, I'm very understood about. In, in America and um, first world countries, the division is, is going narrower and in countries like Mexico. No, it's not. America, that's not true. America's division is getting greater. You think division of, of wealth? The people that, that have. Yes, and, and yes. Like a doctor is getting paid less and a, Doc, yeah. and, and a workmanship can get paid higher in America. The, the, the middle class is getting shrunk at a division of wealth and is getting greater in America. Greater. It's, it's a lot of what's going on in America. So go ahead. Here, here's, he, well, regardless of where you go next, the answer's gonna be the same, so I'll jump in. Okay. That's the answer. We, we don't the, just real quick, real quick, I just wanna finish the thought. One's success should be predicated on how much they can absorb. If you're unable to deal with judgment, with adversity, then that's almost in nature what we're talking about here, right? Like, shouldn't success be predicated on human talents? The human talent, this is back to the opening thing I said about entrepreneurship. This is why I want some people in here to make this be the breakfast that makes them not become an entrepreneur. I want this to become the, listen, the number nine employee at Facebook did a lot better than every other entrepreneur. Your skill might be knowing that what we're talking about right now is not gonna work for you and then spending a year really looking at who you believe in and working in that organization. So, you know, I, I understand exactly what you're saying. Um, but that is, I actually think that's the actual game. One's ability to deal with that. Yeah, we're always blaming, the, the, I, I saw you at Boston like two years ago, one, one night before the election. That, no, the night of. The night of the election. That was the election. It, it was incredible that you were the only speaker that didn't get political. And you said something that, still in, in my head, like it doesn't matter who, who the fuck is gonna win, you said. And right now in Mexico, we're always blaming the government, we're always blaming everyone else, and if you're doing bad, and sometimes it's, it's hard, because you're, you, you look American, you see what's going on there, and you see what's working, and sometimes you just need to, to apply what's working there, here, and it's gonna work, because it's already- It's, to your point, listen, and, and 90% of Americans blame the government. You know, like, I, I think we get confused sometimes, you know, what's actually going on. The reality is, is that 
most people are not interested in being accountable. It's not, I mean, my greatest strength by a country mile is I love being accountable. I like when I'm wrong. I like it. I like it. I like it. Because it, it makes me feel like I'm in control. I'm okay with losing. I'm okay with you thinking I lost. And it feels much more, I think, to your point, do you know why people are so not happy subconsciously? They don't think they're in control. If you don't think you're in control, you have no chance of being happy. I agree. There's no hustle. Hustle in Spanish, there's no word for it. I get it. I was thinking about it. Uh, If you translate it, it's like ajetreo. No, I'm not even thinking about it. But of course, if I just use a bad word, in chinga it's like being busy. No, 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 in chinga it's you're hustling, right? You're busy, you're busy. You guys like fuck, yep. but you can use it for... Multiple you reasons, yeah. <laughs> Makes sense. I use fuck for multiple ways too. <laughs> I was wondering if you were censored for this uh, breakfast. I haven't... I, oh. I, I heard you in, the, in, the, in your videos. Yes. Uh, right now you were very... You know what's funny? I'm, I'm very, <laughs> I'm very, I'm a product of the context. Much like the opening conversation of like context, I'm a product of context. When I'm on stage in front of two, 3,000 people, the energy, I get very much, I grew up watching a lot of stand-up comedy, so I get very Chris Rock, I get very, you know, I, I, I get, I become more of a showman. One-on-one, I, I'm basically very simple. One-on-one, my energy's at my lowest and most serious, and then it just rises based on the amount of humans I'm around. I've seen you pretty not serious one-on-one. I, can, I mean, like, yes, fair enough. When you're with friends, I think when you're with your Sure, buddies, sure, sure. But, you know, listen, I think, yeah, I mean, it just ebbs and flows. Back to the opening question. Like, I never think about, I'm never interested in delivering the Gary V that one expects now that there is one. I just am interested in being myself at all times, and that makes it very simple. I want to ask you a question. Um, I was reading a book about Bless you. ideas. Bless you. Yes. I was reading about uh, how to look for ideas, and it says, um, you know, you, you have to know what you give, like what your deal, like what your professional, what's your core. What, what would that be for you? Like uh, the transcendence, like what would you, yeah, that for what you would focus all your energy. I want to make sure I understand, but I think what you're asking is, you know, what do I view as my core? Yeah. I think I'm a communicator. And that's why I built a communications company to build scale around something that I came to realize. And now, actually, actually, this is really fun. So, I don't fully remember, so I don't want to make it up, but one day, deep in the wine business, I always thought of myself as a retailer, a salesman, a merchant. That's who I thought I was, to myself. And then one day, in the office, as I was doing all the marketer, I just woke up, just, it just hit me. You know, you're always thinking, you know, I'm sure we've all had some different moments. I'm like, wait a minute, I'm a marketer. I'm a marketer whose dad happened to have a liquor store. I built the biggest wine store in America because I was the best marketer, not because I was the best retailer. And I actually had a very recent, for the first time since then, and D-Rock knows where I'm going, that's why she is, you know, about three to four months ago, I said, fuck, I'm a storyteller. I'm a storyteller, I'm not a marketer. And so that has made me make the decision that in the next decade, 
I will produce you know, film and television and I think I'm gonna be very successful. I think I will win an Academy Award and go up there and be like, <laughs> you know? Yeah, that was so, exactly the question. Like, yeah. Because it, it's, it's hard to find it. Like, you took, as you say, many years to really understand That's right. what you were. Because we superficially, if you're an analyst or if you are a, um, a consultant, you think you're a consultant, but behind that, you are more like that. Like, your gig is something else. My, my desperate ambition at this breakfast is to get all your young faces to realize that you're gonna live for 100 more years. And the second you believe me is the second everything can become slow. Right now at this age, everything speeds up. I hate 18 to 30. I hate it. I hate it. I hate 18 to 30 because all of a sudden you went from having nothing to worry about to your parents and society telling you that you have to have everything figured out. It's ludicrous. It's crazy. It makes zero sense. It's based on when people used to live to 40. Really. It makes no sense and it's very deep and it's very emotional and it's very dangerous. And, and people need a perspective change. You could be a consultant for 15 years in this room and still be young as shit when you're done and start your actual life. You could do everything wrong in entrepreneurship for the next 10 years and be 34, 35, 37, which is uncomfortably young. Really. But nobody's saying that to you. You don't believe that. I know it. But it's true. And only people in their 70s, 80s, 90s like, understand it, which is why I'm trying to get people to listen to people that are older. I really am. I really think so. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I'm becoming a sales consultant and the first things that I'm um, having is that people are where they are because they want to. I, I told them because of my experience how I, I love going knocking out doors with the salespeople. Yes. And it's incredible that I tell somebody how to do it and they won't do it in front of me. They won't. They won't. So I want your opinion on that because I want to help people be a better salesperson. I'm becoming better by being with them. I'm not the best one, I'm becoming. So what's your opinion on that? Uh, people don't practice. There's two things that I think about with what you're talking We're talking about true door-to-door selling? Um, yeah? So two things that come to mind. One, back to the first question of talent. Some people are just naturally comfortable with selling and some people are just naturally very scared of it. Yeah, the question is, should you teach? This is your business, your family? <clears throat> if, if I was consulting your business, I would tell you to not teach, but to fire the people that can't and continuously hire until you have a full team that is natural salespeople. You'll be much faster and more effective on finding people who are salespeople than training people that are not, 100%. <laughs> but it's more expensive not to fire them, right? Yeah. I understand that. And by the way, that's a really good point. And I have offices in California and London where it's impossible to fire too. Uh, I still fire. Because I know that hidden waste is very hard for people to figure out. 
as hard it is to fire here, the reality is if you're trying to teach a dog to be a gorilla, you will lose. So what I would then do when you say that to me is say, okay, obviously we have the people we have now, we have to audit that. But going forward when we hire, we have to have a system where we don't officially hire them. How can we hack the system so we can see them? I mean, I'm literally not joking when I tell you, instead of hiring them, you all go to the flea market, you know, all 15 prospects and you watch how they set, I mean it, I mean it. It is a- Yep, I get it. It's cold selling, knocking on the door, is every cycle. I think that one's the hardest one. It's hard. People are people are scared of social media also, but I I don't think I'm the good one that, so I hire other people to do that. I understand. Guys, can I can I ask another question? Do you let me ask you? Yeah, it's only a different gap because this is really your morning, but. We are just closing today, we closed a two-day forum, like a festival on happiness and well-being. Mm. Very unique, 4,000 people attend. That's awesome. Best speakers, they come here and they talk, so I've been attending that. Yes. And there's a lot of talk about how everything you do and you push. Me? It, it, well, oh. social media. Got it, got it, got it, got it, got it, got it. How that is training some of our young kids into people with yeah, I don't believe that. Was, I know, I know you don't, but I want your take on yeah. that. There was a lot of that. And so there were no naysayers and actually attacking it directly under a message that's always there. How it's a lack of, it's a lack of accountability of parents. Lack of? Accountability yeah. from parents. Okay. Parents are demonizing technology because they don't want to take responsibility for the entitlement and insecurities they've created in their own children. That is my belief. There is no social media. There are empty pipes. What are we talking? They also, de- it's no different than, you know, ki- kids are gonna look at something. Remember when it was Vogue's fault for showing all the girls skinny models that led to, it's all the same game. Here's, let me tell you which kids are doing just fine with this. The kids that are lucky enough to have parents that created self-esteem and lack of entitlement. That's who's winning. You know who's losing? The kids whose parents have created insecurities or have put them in positions where if they're not a doctor or lawyer or go into the family steel business, that they're gonna be fucking dead. That's right. And I have no idea, you know. Um, but, <laughs> you know. So, so the demons are self, lack of self-esteem and entitlement. Correct. I couldn't believe in that more. And so it's much more fun to be a parent who subconsciously or consciously knows that their kid is vulnerable to blame Instagram than to blame themselves. What parent goes on stage and says, let me tell you why my kid's upset. I am insecure as a mother. My sister, my older sister, is the person that's always made me feel insecure because she was prettier and more successful. So I have driven my children to be more successful on paper than my sister's children for me to close the gap of my own insecurity. Who says that? What that woman says is, get off of Instagram. No one. There's no accountability in the culture of parenting globally. Not Asia, not America, not South and Central America, globally. You think that's uh, for this, like, right now, or has it been always? Always. 
The only difference is we have a lot more information now. You guys didn't talk before. Nobody talked. Nobody talked. We didn't talk about issues. Nobody had a platform. The news decided. We're being exposed, my friends. We're not changing. This is not technology's fault. We're being exposed. That's what the internet does. 100%. Transparency. Correct, can't hide. We're being exposed. So, that's what I think is going on. Um, Like, by the way, tell your kids to get off technology then. Show me. Parents talk all this, like, they, they they want Facebook to be the parent. They want, they want Apple to limit the phone. Take the phone away. You're a parent. <laughs> it's, it's bullshit at scale. Would have made for a great conversation. I wish I was there. I wish, because those people are in academia and philosophical. They're not in the trenches. Talk to the kids, talk to the parents. Look under the veil. Read the comments. You, Read you the comments. about reading reading the whole thread of the comments. Yeah, listen, I talk to these parents and they're like, Gary, you're wrong. I'm like, cool. And then I'm like, but did you know that I act, like I'm talking about now friends in business where I actually know their kids as well. So it's easy for me because I have both sides because they'll DM me on TikTok and I know. I'm like, you think this is social media's fault. I know it's because you're paying for your kid's life and they feel insecure. You know? When you're 25 and you're taking money from your parents, you're losing life. You're in a bad place. No matter what. No matter what. You're in a bad place. You're in a bad place. It's a bad place to be. You have to stand on your own two feet to get actual happiness. And your parents are forcing you to take the money because they want you to look like you're successful. They're not doing it because of any other thing. They, it's because they actually don't think you're capable. That's why you're upset. You know, that's, of course it's control. If I pay for you, I can make you marry who I want you to marry. I can make you work where I want you to make. They're using this control mechanism. Number one thing I tell kids to do is get off the payroll. Number one. I did it so much, I not only got off the payroll, I fucking made my, my parents all their money. I, I'm being serious, I wanted the control, subconsciously. Think about that, it's crazy. That's so anyway, that's the number one thing I want for kids. If, if I could have anything happen, I would have dictatorship law that when you turn 18 or 22 or whatever your society is like, that it's illegal to take money from your parents. Your next book should be about parenting. I'm working on it. I'm working on it. I've been working on it for a long time here. Um, you, know, you know what's interesting? And you two will know this, I know this. In society, in every country, what's lost is borrowing money from your parents and paying them back, right? You know, when I was growing up, when, you know, you know, for anybody 40 and older, the system was, you know, especially for our parents, they, would, they maybe borrowed money from their parents to buy a house or to start their career, but they always paid them back. The current state for a lot of this is... We bankroll. Bankroll. And quietly. Sometimes parents are bankrolling when the other parent doesn't even know. There's a, lot go, there's a lot going on that nobody wants to talk about. And so, when you don't want to talk about your vulnerabilities, blame Facebook. Um, my number one answer to everything when it comes to parenting is self-esteem. 
I really believe that it is the magic sauce. If your child has self-esteem, they're capable of dealing with anything. If they have self-worth, if they believe in themselves, they can get through anything. And I, I think the way to solve anything bad, bullying, other problems, is not to do what most people do, which is they, they attack the defense. They attack the bully, the parents of the bully, the school. Or they protect or overprotect. Yeah, they go, to de- they go defense. It's defense. I think it's offense. If, God forbid, one of my children are bullied, my reaction is to go all in on them and get them to re-look at the world from a different perspective, okay. at all costs. Not go fight the school or the bully's parents or the bully himself, you know. It's not the victim perspective, but more like what am I gonna do? People play defense. Yeah. You know, back to marketing, what we were talking about, they move a little bit away from television, they go start doing something new, they have one bad quarter, they go all back to television. It's all defense. Thank you. You're welcome. Hey Gary, I'm Andrew. Really great meeting you. Nice to meet you, brother. Um, I love your hair. Thank you. <laughs> so, uh, reading through your bio, we noticed that you may have like more than one business at once. Mm-hmm. Conventional wisdom might say you should focus on one thing. And yes, that's right. yes. So how would you go about manage, like, how do you manage doing so many things and doing them? So I think it's a, it's a game of self-awareness. Yeah. I think for certain people here, they should only manage one business because that's what makes them happy. They like structure, cross your T, dot your I, go all in. I'm very creative and purebred entrepreneurship. So for me, the way I focus is by having other things going on. You know, I need, for me, to have the direct-to-consumer wine business to do a call for 30 minutes during a day, it resets me having to focus on VaynerMedia, you know? Um, the way I handle doing multiple things is by being okay if they fail. You understand? Yeah. My big theory is I'm gonna hold eight balls in the air and if two break, I still have six and that's better than your one. <laughs> But this is all that we've been talking about. I'm capable of dropping those two balls. Thank you. you know? In that context, what do you think about partnerships? And I think partnerships are inherently vulnerable. It's inconceivable for two human beings to have their interests aligned at all times. It's very hard. And that's something that's happening to me. Like when you have a partner and you're not going to the same You're in deep shit. Partnerships, par- partnerships are tough when they're family businesses and you actually do have interests aligned at some level. Two strangers, even if they're best friends, you could start off the first six years. To, at this young of an age, you start some partnerships and it's unbelievable. But then somebody falls in love and wants to spend more time and all of a sudden, but you're tripling down and you're enjoying it more than ever at 29 and you want to go 150%, but that person wants to start a family. That's a problem. And, and, and Carlos has a conference in a week, Carlos, yeah. uh, the, about partnership. Okay. Scaling your business with, I'm going to be one of the, the, the speakers. And I want your take on that because the, the thing that Carlos is saying is to scale up, you need partnerships. I understand that. Listen, and, and back to what I was saying about entrepreneurship, that's great. Like, you know, I, I love that conversation. I love people who have JBs and all the other places. You have to know yourself though. I'll tell you, and I'm sure you'll bring this up, Carlos, I'll tell you one person 
that should never have a partnership. One that is so literal about it being even at all times. Because they're gonna break. They're gonna, you know, if you're able to think about it in a 50 year window, you're more likely to have successful partnerships than not. Plus, are they partnerships? Or are you scaling with leverage? A partnership is, you know, 50-50. Uh, I own 80% and she owns 20% for my office in Mexico and I have all the leverage to fire her even if I want to. That's not a partnership, that's scaling a business. So also the terminology of partnership has many different definitions. You know, is McDonald's with their franchisees a partnership? I don't think so. I think it's a franchise model. That, you know, so it depends on how one defines a partnership. When I think about partnership, I truly do think you start a company together, like me and my brother, 50-50, right? But that's my definition. To your, to Carlos, to yours, to her, you know, and there's a lot of different versions of it. But then that's not necessarily a partnership in the way that I define it. It's a little bit more of a business structure that potentially can benefit everybody. A lot of people should only own 8% of a business because they want a 40-hour work week. There's a bigger machine taking care of the pressure. That's why people love franchises. They feel like they're entrepreneurs, but it's a half-pregnant entrepreneur, you know? And it works. It works for the company, it works for people. It works. It's been proven to work. And it's also, it works better when you don't have the capital. The, the I understand. The system in the US is very capital-driven. We don't have it, so partnership drive will grow. I understand. And in the US too, and, and by the way, you know, that also then gets back to patience. You know, I have, you know, I have not wanted to do partnerships and I haven't had capital. People are, I don't take capital. I don't like capital. I don't like it. I don't want anybody to have leverage. You know, and so, so for me, to your point, and we, we talked a little bit about this, it's been brought up a little bit here already, like it also depends on how quickly you want something. You know, here's an incredible idea. Run a profitable business and save money and then use that capital. That's as foreign as a conversation from America to Shanghai to Mexico. That is not talked about at all. That is dead, what I grew up with. Build a business, save money, use the money to do something. Unheard of talk. Something I'd like to see come back. Might take 28 years. You know, the way I would answer that if you, like, you were my younger sister, it would be more like, okay, well, you have no control over that. So you're probably right, good news. You have your whole life outside of your university to be yourself. You know? <laughs> you know? Universities are gonna ebb and flow. Right now it's about teamwork stuff. In seven years, there'll be some book written about individuality and all the universities will get on board and then it'll be all individual studies. Like, ebbs and flows. Yeah, but like, don't you think you don't catch up fast enough to Yes, I think, I think education, I think schools, um, the education, the way we do education in society today is fundamentally broken. Of course I think that, you guys know that. You're learning the dumbest shit ever. <laughs> you, you know, like, like, you know. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I was reading Yes. Um, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about 
that? Um, so three years ago, yep, three years ago, my brother walked into the office. My brother's 11 years younger than me. So my master plan was build this machine. My brother will eventually run it. I'll go run a business that we buy to run through the machine. He walks in, he goes, I want out. My brother has Crohn's disease. So, you know, as an older brother that's 11 years older, you get into that father-brother land, so you feel compassion. He said he was stressed too much, back to what we were talking about. And with Crohn's, you know, a year earlier, he had a surgery to take 12 inches of his intestines out. The stress was getting to him. Because he doesn't like people, he doesn't like the pressure of managing people, which really is difficult. I promise you. If you don't love that, you might as well close up shop and not have a business. Uh, so he, we love sports, we love American football especially. I had bought, we had bought a small agency that represented four or five players, nobody big, but I wanted to learn because my great ambition is to buy the New York Jets American football franchise. And so I was, we had it, and he then a couple months later said I want to run that business. And so we started Vayner Sports. And so we're three years in, it's going very well. We have 25 football players, um, American football players. Uh, this year, the college players that we're recruiting, we're in an incredible place. Now that we're a little older, you know, the first year we had to go by, you had to believe us. Now that we're a couple years in, all our players are making more money in marketing than their competitive players. So we're starting to build a reputation. We think we're gonna have a very big class. You know, last year we had two guys in the draft. This year I think we'll have 15. So it's starting to build up. It's fun. I think they do. Do you know what Sports Business Journal is? Google that. Read that. You'll like it. There is places. What's funny about the sports business, when you really look under the hood, is it's a very funny business because sports is such a big passion and, and there's just a lot of amateur business people in the sports business. They're there because they love it, but they're not necessarily great at business. So it leads to a lot of opportunity, actually. The agent world or? Well, sports, you know, the, the, the mega brands in the world, the FIFA owning, you know, World Cup. Uh, the, it needs more space for, you know, for entrepreneurs and yeah. disrupted players. Well, where the space is is in the emerging sports. There's plenty of room to do oh, interesting sports. stuff in esports. Sports you know, crazy. you know, and so that's how it always is. You know, it's there's always. As things become more mature and more money, they become corporate and conglomerate and defense and communism, you know? And when things are emerging, it's more open. You're gonna buy the Jets? I'm definitely gonna buy the Jets. Oh, there you go, we need to wake up five minutes more. Uh, I would invite you to maybe take a picture of a picture with everyone. Maybe. <laughs> cool, let's do it. Thank you, guys. Thank you. Thanks, guys, for listening. Please, please, please share the podcast and make sure you've subscribed because a bunch of you aren't subscribed and more importantly, a bunch of you listen every day and haven't told your friends it's the best podcast in the world. I'm watching. (laughs) Have a great day.